to the Scaling Japan podcast, a podcast about how to grow your business from $100,000 and beyond, and beyond in the land of the rising sun. Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Bottino. I wanted to apologize in advance for the audio for my voice in the upcoming episode. It is quite low because I had a code, but I hope you enjoy the content and I hope to continue producing more great episodes for you. And on today's show, we have Nalan Advani. Nalan is the co-founder of Entomo. He is also a very well-known investor and entrepreneur in Japan and Asia. He has worked for Fortune 500 corporations and has scaled multiple businesses in Japan and Asia. He also serves on the board of directors of multiple large corporations, and several of the companies he has invested in have completed an IPO. I have wanted to get Nalin on the podcast since the moment I first met him, which was on the Monday night Business in Japan Clubhouse chats, which we'll link in the description. And I really, really look forward to him providing some insights on IPOs in Japan. So it's so great to have you on the podcast, Nolan. And could you share anything else about yourself? Thanks for having me here, Tyson. And uh, thanks for being on the clubhouse as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I know a little bit about your background. And again, hats off to you for putting the time and effort in to make this podcast happen. A little bit about me. I was born and raised in Japan. I'm of Indian heritage and origin. I currently live in Yokohama, Japan, as well as Singapore. And I come and go between the two places. I consider myself Asian and I love technology. I love working with early stage companies, founders, to try and find ways to scale their businesses and to apply technology to solve problems because I think that's what technology is here for. And you are a legend in the foreign startup community. When I mentioned that you're going to come on the podcast, a lot of startup founders like, okay, I definitely got to listen to that. Uh, thank you for that. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I certainly am not a legend. I just, you know, I love technology. I love working with ideas and I love impact, whether we're impacting supply chains or in healthcare or, you know, automation or whatever it is. I just, I think technology if it's applied well, can make our lives better. And, and I enjoy being part of that process of taking an idea and doing something good with it. Yeah, and I really appreciate your contributions to the startup community of Japan and also especially the foreign community. And actually, it's there's not too many foreigners who have kind of experience, you know, with the IPO or, you know, seeing it go through. But uh, what has been your experience with the whole IPO process in Japan? Fortunately, I've been, you know, an early stage investor. So I have about, I don't know, about 20 companies I've invested in over various stages of my life and career. Um, but my first investment in a Japanese company, this investment happened in 1998. It was in an area, a domain that I understand very well, which is back then we called it embedded systems. Um, these days we call it IOT. It's basically the software and the intelligence that goes into making things connected and uh, more effective, more efficient and better. So it was a company that we call ESOL. That's E-S-O-L. I invested in this company and then I also took a board seat 
And then I eventually became the chief marketing officer of the company. Um, it started out as a services company. And, you know, I was like, services companies can't scale so well. And then you have services companies coming in from other countries that can offer services at better rates. Let's turn this into a technology company. So we actually turned the whole company into a product licensing company. It licensed the software and then it upsold services. This company eventually scaled and did an IPO. It took a long time. It did an IPO in 2018. I stayed on as a board member till I think 2006. Since you ask Tyson, I mean, we had options back then where it was not just the Tokyo Stock Exchange, but we had Jastack and I believe we had Mothers as options. But I think, you know, the founding CEO was very keen to get listed on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. <laughs> you know, it was a, I think it was a little bit of the brand power, the credibility that comes with being listed on the TSE. I'm proud to say that it did take a long time, but ESOL did get listed. It went IPO 2018 on TSE, and now it's a member of the Tokyo Stock Exchange Prime. Very impressive. And I'm, you know, I'm very proud of what the company does because its software is helping, you know, it runs cars, it runs GPS systems, it runs printers, it even runs fax machines. And it's great. It's good to see, you know, I feel very proud being able to see a machine or a device and say, you know what, it's my software that's in there. Wow, that's very cool. Yep, power of fax machines is establishing or it's helping maintain the communication infrastructure of Japan. Yeah, it's a small, I think fax machines are a tiny part of the business. The biggest, obviously for ESOL, the biggest chunk of the business comes from the automotive industry because most of us probably know this, but there's a ton of intelligence built into cars and it requires software to power most of that. So ESOL is definitely focused on the automotive industry. That is very cool. And I think you mentioned like a couple of the possibilities for IPO, like, you know, Tokyo Stock Exchange or Mother's. And we'll go into more detail later. I also wanted you to give you a chance. Like, I know you advise quite a few companies, but uh, how do you help companies? Uh, okay. Um, I mean, for me, usually it's first the founders. So if there's a founder who I'm fortunate enough to meet and our conversation clicks and I like the ideas um, or I'm able to contribute to shaping the ideas, our conversations just continue in many cases, I end up becoming a small, an angel investor in the company. In some cases, I also take sweat equity. In other words, I get very involved. I can think of a few companies. Maybe I shouldn't be naming them right now, but the founders who are listening to us speak right now that you probably recognize this, put in anywhere from one hour a week to at a later stage, maybe one hour a quarter. Um, but we will spend time. We will structure we will look at things like how to raise money. We will look at things like how to take the product or the idea to fruition and to market. A big one is team, right? How to build a team, who to look for, when to hire them, uh, what's the prioritization. One of the things about startups is we are all very resource constrained. And a big differentiation in terms of our ability to succeed is how we choose to apply our resources. So I'm there with the founders thinking that through and helping them figure out which market do we go in first? If we have more than one technology, which one do we productize first? If we have a market segment, you know, what are the top three market segments we want to go into? Where would we have a competitive advantage? And so, so it's a lot of this ideation and, and a little bit of sparring with the founder to figure out where we should go. 
in a sense, I'm an early investor, but I'm also in some cases a co-founder, maybe not taking a super active day-to-day role, but definitely by sparring with the founder, helping shape the offering and helping shape the company. So to your question, Tyson, you know, how do I get involved with companies? I certainly get involved first with the founders and then through the conversations eventually to the company. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially for also even second time and third time founders, but for first time founders, like bringing someone like you on the team saves so much time from learning from trial and error. And when you're doing something novel and new, you really don't have the time to just continuously make mistakes that take several months to recover from. And it's all about speed. So that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, time is getting compressed. And so our ability, our meaning, you know, startups in the startup community, you know, of course, we have to learn from our failures. And and I know this is a cliche, but if you've got to fail, you have to fail fast and then recover and move on, right? Failure is part of the learning process, but it's accelerating. And if there's ways to limit the impact of failure, or if there's ways to fail more quickly, learn and move on, I certainly want to be applying those. And I suppose because I've done this a few times, I'm able to help that process of accelerating the failure and then accelerating the ability to bounce back, adapt, to react. I think there's a lot of wisdom, I'll say, compacted into that. I agree 100%. So I kind of going back to the IPO, I'll start with the basic question, but what exactly is an IPO? Okay, so I'm very opinionated on this. To me, an IPO is an initial public offering. So it's the first time you're offering your shares to the public. Until your IPO, you're offering your shares to a more limited set of people, your investors, perhaps uh, investors as in institutional investors, basically venture capital. Earlier on, you're offering your shares to your friends and family and angels like myself. But an IPO is the process of making your shares available to people that, in a sense, you do not have the ability to choose who they are, because now your shares are available publicly on a market, on an exchange. And anybody, in theory, as long as they're not breaking other laws, can come in and acquire or sell the shares that you've now put up for offer. So to me, an initial public offering, an IPO, is a way to raise more money. And you've earned the credibility to raise more money because you've shown time and time again through transparency, through success, through the fact that you may have failed and learned from the failures, but you now have earned the credibility to offer your shares to the public. What you do as a result is you can raise more money. You can raise money at a higher valuation for your company. And this is where you know my opinions might differ from others. To me, an IPO is generally not an exit for the founders, especially. And you know, I'm a traditionalist here. Yeah, in some cases, the founders can you know sell some of their shares. Even in some cases, completely exit the company. But the company has to go on. And the process of an IPO is basically to raise money to go do something more effective, more meaningful, more powerful, more impactful than you could have done before you offered your shares to the public. It's a way to raise money. And then um, this is where, you know, again, I feel a bit disappointed sometimes to see that companies do an IPO and they see that as an exit. You do see some companies where this happened in Japan. You see it a lot where the company lists 
And then when you look at their share price over one year, three years, five years from when they're listing, it goes down. It's a downward slide from the top left to the bottom right. And that's disappointing, right? What you want to do is raise money, go do some more great stuff with that money, and hopefully return more value to the people who bought your shares once you went public. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back and let me help you and your company scale. Find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. I thought that was a perfect explanation of it. And that was actually one of the misconceptions I had about the IPO when we were going through the real scaling phase is, you know, would an IPO be beneficial or not? I did come to it with the impression that it was like my Sirenata moment, but no, like how you described it. You have the public, they're investing in your company because they want to see it grow and to provide returns in the future. And if your company has a plan, like this is what you want to use the funds for to achieve your bigger mission. That's how you can return the investment for the people who've putting their faith and more importantly, their money in you. Absolutely. It's a different audience, right? Having said that, I mean, founders typically, you know, I can think of a few, even foreign founders in, in Japan. I, there's a few I have immense respect for. Um, I'm not sure if I should be naming them here, but I'm going to name one person who I'm very fond of and have respect for, which is Paul Chapman. He's the founder and CEO of Money Tree. You know, he's on that Monday clubhouse that I'm on very often. <laughs> and he says it really well, which is, you know, we're smart, talented folks and we can go out and go work for a company and make a lot of money. But as founders, we've chosen to do something that, you know, play a longer game. And usually that means we earn less. And we also deserve to be rewarded for making these sacrifices,、um, whether it's time with family, whether it's taking you know, less salary, and so on. So I think a founder is warranted in selling his shares or her shares when the company goes public.、Um, not all of them. And anyway, you, know, you're bound, you are bound by insider policies and systems. So you can't just dump your shares and move on. But I think founders should be rewarded for the sacrifices they've made. And they should be allowed and they should be welcomed to exit part of their holding. But it's important to note that the founders are usually a key part of the company and a key reason why the company was able to go public in the first place. So there's a balance between some amount of exit and some amount of taking the public's money and doing more good with it. I also agree with that as well. Because by the time you've listed your company, You've worked in your company for five years, 10 years, some cases, 20 years. In return for all the sacrifice and let's say giving up that stability, you would like a little bit of a retirement fund. I mean, I'm just speaking now from my own point of view.、Um, you know, with ESOL, while I'm not a founder of ESOL, I'm the, in Japanese, Nazuke no Oya, the person who named it. So I took the company from being a services company to being a product company. I earned the right, I suppose, to rename it. And so I see myself as partially kind of a founder here. And you know, I stayed on as a shareholder all the way through the IPO. After the IPO, what I did was I did partially sell my holding 
and kept part of the money in the company. But what I did with the, the money I earned as a result of my partial exit was I reinvested it in other companies. And so this is something I welcome. And anybody who's listening, if you're fortunate enough to get an IPO, certainly reward yourself and your family for the sacrifices you've done, but also perhaps find an opportunity to pay it forward. Invest in more companies and mentor more founders because what you've learned is certainly going to be helping more people go through the path you've gone through as well. Yeah, it just creates a positive loop and cycle where the amount of money being reinvested, but also the knowledge and experience, which then influences future founders, which raises their skills and abilities. And it just has this really positive cycle that it starts to develop. And uh, so there's multiple stock exchanges in Japan, but could you go a little bit into some of what's available? Right. So, I mean, originally you had the Tokyo stock and you actually had Osaka as well, which I'm not too knowledgeable about, but you had the TSE, Tokyo Stock Exchange, Tokyo Tosho, what we call Tosho. And that used to have the first and second divisions. I'm not sure of the criteria really between the first and second, but basically big companies and bigger companies. And then later on, you know, I think the TSE looked at what happened in the U.S. with NASDAQ, right? In the U.S., you have the the New York Stock Exchange, then you had NASDAQ, and NASDAQ was geared more towards um, growth companies. The criteria to list on NASDAQ is a little was a little bit, I don't want to use the word easier, but the criteria was different. And I think as a result, Japan then came up with something called the JASDAQ, like, you know, the name also points to the fact that they were very <laughs> conscious of, of the NASDAQ. And then they added another exchange called Mothers. And the idea of Mothers was, you know, I think the company didn't even have to be profitable to list on Mothers. So you had these three different blocks, the TSE, the JASDAQ, and then Mothers. Recently, all these have been pooled under one umbrella, the JPX. And within that, they've kind of redistributed how, you know, where you could fit in. So right now, the TSE has three sections, the prime section, the standard, and the growth section. Biproji, which used to be called Nihon Unisys, where I'm on the board. Um, it's a large Japanese systems integrator. This is on the Tokyo, on the prime exchange. The prime has about uh, just short of 2,000 companies on the prime exchange. On the standard, there's about 1,000 companies. And then on the growth, there's around 500, if I if I remember correctly. Um, growth is, you know, I think they've captured the spirit of the mother's exchange. So basically small companies who may or may not be profitable, but show the potential of growth, show the uh, potential of being able to scale quickly and be disruptive. Typically, those are the ones who go on the growth exchange. I think for them, it's very clear they're ideally they're raising money by going public because that's a better option than raising money from venture capital. I think in the case of standard and prime, companies would get listed here or get moved there based on their credibility, their scale, size, and stability. So I think, you know, prime exchange, we typically don't expect companies to grow there at double every year or something. But definitely, if you're on the prime exchange, you pay a dividend, whether it's 50 yen a share or 5,000 yen a share, you're paying a, you know, a solid dividend every year quite predictably. Whereas on the growth, um, you're not expected to pay dividends, but you're expected to hopefully scale the company and eventually perhaps even enter the standard or the prime exchanges. I hope I've given a little bit of clarity to this. 
No, you provided a very great summary of it. I think for mothers, they might have like a growth rate requirement. I don't remember the exact details as well, but no, I thought that was an excellent summary. I don't think there's a, a you know, like many things in Japan, there, I think there will be guidelines, but there's not like a hard and fast. Yeah, rule. like there's not like it must absolutely, but there's kind of a guideline for the growth or the potential. Yes. So I'm kind of curious, like, you know, if someone were to launch an IPO, but what are the, some of the things that would change for a company and its founders after a successful IPO? Well, so if it's a successful IPO, of course, the founders will have a much higher net worth, for sure. If they sell their shares, then they have to also remember to be mindful of any insider obligations they hold. They will have to pay a tax on capital gains. But I suppose those are more, you know, personal and private issues. The, the changes that would impact their business is their reporting obligations, right? Now that you're public, you're open to and you deserve to be scrutinized by the public. <laughs> Even in the process leading up to an IPO, you've got to make sure you're ethically, you're doing the right thing. Your numbers are stand up to the scrutiny. Because in general, again, you know, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, but the idea of doing an IPO is you're going to do better and more with the public's money. And people have placed their trust in you uh, with their money. And so you have to quarterly announcements, monthly board meetings. Um, the board meetings have to be minuted. Um, you have to react to any changes in the environment, whether they're regulatory or otherwise. How you go about governance of the company will change. As a founder, you know, sometimes you might be very used to making decisions based on your instinct, based on your competences. But uh, when you go public, you will usually have outside board members like myself, and you will have to be able to justify decisions you're making as a manager day to day to your outside board members. Strictly speaking, you know, you're also handing over executive uh, nominations to the nominations committee of the board. Before you're public, you get to, in many ways, in many cases, you as a founder or your, you know, your board and your investors are the people who get to choose and who have to choose who get leadership positions and who has what responsibility in the company. When you're public, you are opening that up to a broader audience. Um, the broad audience is represented by the board, uh, including the outside board members. You have obligations to the public and you need to meet those obligations. Also, on the other hand, I think when it comes to IPO, you can also fail and not raise enough money or capture enough attention. That's a good point, Tyson. And, you know, I'm not a very big fan of the concept of a SPAC. And unfortunately, Japan didn't really embrace it. But I have seen SPACs being done in the U.S. and other countries. It's not an ideal way to get listed. I mean, if, you're, if your company can withstand the scrutiny of an exchange, you should be able to get listed without having to use these complex devices like a SPAC. And as you see, most of the SPAC listings that have happened on the U.S. exchanges, I don't think most of them have performed very well for that exact reason. Yeah, I think a lot of them have experienced a lot of, or the amount that they was say, initially was offered versus the current value it has. Yeah been some destruction in and, and, value there. Yeah. And I mean, I, to me, that's only fair, right? I mean, it's basically the markets have a way of balancing things out. And if the company was overvalued in the first place, 
the market has a way of telling us that over time. Have you ever found yourself having trouble creating a business plan? Do you pretty much operate on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis, creating confusion and chaos in your organization? If that sounds like you, I recommend you join my Entrepreneur Bootcamp. In my bootcamp, you will set an achievable but challenging revenue target for the current or following fiscal year, and we will create a business plan to make it a reality. See more in the show notes below. And now back to our episode. I would not want to be in that position (laughs) of failing an IPO. So uh, I was actually surprised how complex and long the process is of an IPO, but could you share a little bit about the general timeline? It can differ, I think. Um, but, you know, you have a, a jumbishu, basically a team of people who are brought in to prepare you. Um, if you are VC-backed, in most cases, you know, you are. And the newer companies, in the case of ESOL, where I was, you know, we weren't VC-backed. We were self-funded and cash flow positive. But later, the banks came in. You know, whether it's a VC or a bank, they have teams that are going to help you through that process. And so having frequent and open conversations with whether it's the bank or the VC is very important. You will eventually have to choose a lead who's going to help you with the process of listing. And it's not necessarily your main bank, but it is going to be a bank who's going to lead that whole process. And um, frequent communications with your Jumbish, your listing preparatory team committee, and the bank is very important. There will be scrutiny. You will have to bring in, typically one of the big four audit firms will come in and start, and it doesn't have to be one of the big four, but you know the equivalent of the big four will come in. They will start scrutinizing generally your income statements, your P&L, as a result, your balance sheet, and all that. They will help you clean it up if there's anything there that just the accounting principles may not have been done cleanly or properly. Um, ideally, you know, you would have at this point had a, a CFO who really understands this process. And that person would work very closely with the banks to get everything together, right? You also then have to think about the constitution of your board, who's on your board, um, who lends credibility to the persona of your company. And then you file your paperwork with the exchange. There's a process where the, you know, your lead bank is going to basically float the listing out. And it doesn't necessarily happen that you list on the day you plan to list because essentially they will run some numbers and see if the market agrees with those numbers. And the market may not necessarily agree, in which case you don't, that the listing doesn't happen on that day. You might also be forced to revisit the numbers. The numbers means the valuation of the company. And, and therefore, you know, you can work backwards from the valuation to how many shares you're putting in the market and what that per share price might look like. So there's going to be a little bit of fine tuning on what that number might end up looking like. But that's broadly speaking, the processes. In terms of the people, you need a good CFO, right? You need a, a good board who's going to support you. You need a good audit firm and you need a bank that works closely with you for the listing process. Um, I hope I answered, you know, broadly the the question you're asking. Yeah, you answered my question and some of the follow questions I've had. So I think for me, the realization was it's not like you just do the offering and let's say money comes to you. 
I mean, you have to get the the banks, you have to do a road show, getting the people to really bring that initial momentum in capital. And let's say if they have trust and they have faith in your ability, then, you know, other public investors will start putting money in as well. Some things I think that would be useful for the listeners is maybe there's some people that are considering to do an IPO, let's say three years, five years from now. And, uh, or maybe could you elaborate more about like kind of the team needed or some of the preparations they could make at this moment to really get ready for the hard battle that's going to come in two or four years, like the scrutiny. So yes, yeah, so the CFO is really key. Um, one thing that I've observed is, you know, really identify who are going to be the public voices for the company. And usually it's the CEO and the CFO and the roles, like who speaks about what. In many cases, the CEO will speak about, you know, the technology, the business, um, and the customer, whereas the CFO will talk about the income statement, the PL, and the comparative, like where we are today as opposed to last year, and where we think we're going to go, the projections, and so on. In your prospectus, in that document that you will file, that you will put out there, these statements will also be articulated. So... Again, you you need to make sure that the CFO and the CEO are aligned and saying, you know, sending the right, the same message, right? And you don't want to be in a situation where people say, well, why do we have two different voices with two different messages? It's the same message with two voices, but with two different flavors, right? One addressing the markets, because don't forget, your customers are also conscious of the fact that you're going public. If I'm a company that's considering going public and my customers, first of all, they need to know that. And second of all, you know, we need to consider the impact it has on it. And very often that's the CEO's role. That's not the CFO's role. Whereas the CFO's role is going to be, you know, the markets, the the public who might invest in the company, the investors, the existing investors, and so on. I think we often forget the customer. The customer is the one who got us where we were in the first place. And what impact do we have on his or her business when we go public? Or is there any kind of like new compliances, I think, like kind of like rules that they would have to comply with? I mean, compliance is a good thing, right? I mean, usually by us going public, we would struggle to find a customer who doesn't like the fact that we're going public. Having said that, you know, the fact that that customer is our customer could become public knowledge. And maybe they don't want that. If I'm supplying, you know, key technology to an automotive company, and now I'm public, I'm now the CEO of the company, and I have a shareholders meeting. But technically, my shareholder has the right to ask me who my customer is. And technically, I have to say something about that. Now, my customer may not be happy, even if I don't directly say that customer's name. I mean, you can usually connect dots, right? So my customer may not necessarily be happy by the fact that they're my customer is now public knowledge. Yeah, especially gives them a competitive advantage too. Exactly. So, I mean, there's these really subtle things that people sometimes overlook. This is one of them. Yeah, but certainly the the credibility we get by becoming a public company usually will benefit our customer too. So would you say, would it be really helpful in actually getting bigger contracts or let's say have an impact on maybe increasing the sales lead flow? I think the answer to both questions is generally yes, right? Companies who looked at a, you know, a small little startup that says, you know, will these guys be around 10 years from now? 
all of a sudden says, wow, okay, yeah, we can work with these guys. They're public. They're, you know, the, their scrutiny, they're, they're living to a, a code and a standard that the public has signed off on. Sure, we can buy from them. Whereas before you went public, there's no guarantee these guys are going to be around. So I can't build my technology or my business based on a solution from these guys. But now all of a sudden, because you've gotten public shareholding, you become a viable vendor to them. So on the customer side, yes. And then in terms of the pipeline, I think it's the same thing. Potential customers who were considering buying from you, um, but weren't sure because they were, you know, your credibility was not as strong or in their perception, your ability to, to stay in business for a long term was not guaranteed. Now they say, well, we'll happily buy from you. There will be a small component of, of customer, I suppose, who doesn't want to buy from a public company for the reason I gave earlier. <laughs> still, and I still think that's tiny compared to all the other benefits in terms of both customer credibility and in terms of uh, business pipeline. Yeah. And there's another one, like government contracts too. I mean, it depends on the business you're in. But if you are in a B2B business, and most of, you know, a lot of what I do is B2B. But if you are in a B2B business and you potentially can work with governments, they're probably more likely to go with you because you're public for the same reason, right? And governments don't do things for six months and, and 18 months. They do things that have lasting impact 10, 15, 20 years. Gotcha. No, that makes perfect sense. And is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners about IPO or IPOing in Japan? or any other personal thoughts you have on IPOs that you haven't mentioned yet? So I'll share two thoughts, right? One is an IPO is, to me, it's not an exit. It's a very important milestone. So to all founders, whether you ultimately do an IPO, get to do an IPO, or decide not to do one, I think it's a nice milestone to hold as a, as a goal or somewhere in your mind, in your, in your journey. So that's the first one. And the second one is, you know, please do consider very carefully if and when you get that possibility of doing one, the right and good thing for your existing shareholders and your future shareholders. I think I was going to add one point of also, if you do plan to go for an IPO, you know, like several years down the road, like really thinking about the current team. And if you were to get that influx of capital, is this really the team that could carry out and make do on those promises to increase shareholder returns? So I'm going to take that as a question. And uh, I'd say, you know, again, you're raising money. And one of the things that raising money allows you to do is go out and hire people who are smarter than you. And uh, that's a good situation to be in. If I can hire people who are smarter than me, before I went public, I couldn't afford them. Now I can afford them. And now that I afford them, um, they work hard. They, they will help contribute to increasing shareholder value. Um, that's good for them. That's good for me. That's good for all the new shareholders in the company as well. Also, just being around them and see how they operate will also elevate your frameworks or systems of thinking in how yeah. to run a company. Absolutely. And again, you know, you're... you're the governance, right? Not just the, the managers of the company, not just the potential new CXOs that you can hire, but also by virtue of, of having, you know, needing some independent board members and some management board members, 
know, you're opening yourself up to a different view of the world, and you're also opening yourself up to to be viewed differently from the world. So all these things, I think, are generally a plus, but you just have to make very sure that 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 is the path you want to take. And once you've taken that path, you know, please make the the most and the best of it. Thank you so much for for your time, Nalan. And I guess with the last part is, uh, do you have any requests or any asks for the audience or anything you'd like to share about yourself? Nothing specific other than, you know, if you found this conversation interesting, then uh, feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn. I do enjoy conversations with founders and uh, prospective founders. So if you reach out to me, I promise I will try to respond and, and maybe start conversations with you as well. And we will add a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Sure. Thank you so much, Nalin. Thank you, Tyson. You take care. Have a good day.